I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need, and get 10% off with the code all caps FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com. And use the code, all caps, FRIEND10, to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What is going on, anti-heroes journeyers? Doc Askins here, bringing you another Q5 podcast where I ask the same five questions to as diverse an array of people as I can possibly hoodwink into spending some time on the podcast with me. And then you get to cruise through all the different episodes and compare notes, see how similar and how different people's questions actually are from all over the world. Today, I've got a special treat for you. I've got one of my best, best friends on the podcast here, Duran Young, LCSW. She is a licensed therapist specializing in racial trauma and legacy burdens. She's also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. She's a retired military officer, the founder of Black Therapist Rock. Black Therapist Rock is a nonprofit organization with a network of over 30,000 mental health professionals committed to reducing the psychological impact of systemic oppression and intergenerational trauma. She obtained her social work degree from the University of Texas, where she studied abroad in Ghana, West Africa, for two semesters, creating a high school counseling center for under-resourced students. Duran has visited over 37 different countries, and her clinical experience spans across four different continents. Her passion for culture and people has led her to become a highly sought-after diversity and inclusion consultant working with companies like Beberg. Facebook, LinkedIn, and the YWCA. She resides in the Washington, D.C. area with her 10-year-old son, Duran. It's a privilege and an honor to have you on the podcast with me today, my friend. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I was going to uh, start off with uh, question number one, what's your story? But you said it was okay for me to tell everybody how we met in the first place. So I'm going to go ahead and tell a little bit of our story before asking you about your story, if that's cool. We met at the Omega Institute up in New York for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, MDMA-assisted therapy training, and through divine fate or just the luck of the draw, we wound up in the same small group cohort for the whole week. We were walking up a hill at one point, and you kind of pulled me aside and uh, said, hey, man, you don't know a whole lot about this medicine, do you? <laughs> You don't have a whole lot of experience here. I was obviously the narc in the group, just the big, ugly dude who was learning a whole lot of things for the first time. And you were very kind to kind of pull me aside and give me a whole lot of uh, downloads about 
how the medicine works and how to provide therapy. And I learned so much from you that week. I really appreciate you being willing to be my friend and stay in conversation ever since then. Come on the podcast here and uh, share your story. So thank you for that. I like to think that anytime I find out someone is a fellow uh, military veteran, it's like an instant connection, an instant friendship, because there's some unique experiences that we have that the general public does not. So I feel like I'm always wanting to uh, connect and support fellow veterans. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, and it's a pleasure to have you. So I'm just going to ask you that first question we talked about. What's your story? Yeah, well, my story is a little bit like yours in the sense that I didn't have a lot of experience with quote unquote drugs in my adulthood because I was in the United States Air Force for 20 years. I retired from the United States Air Force as an Air Force social worker. Joined the Air Force when I was 18 years old, fresh out of high school for educational benefits and to get some kind of professional experiences and expertise and just to learn about what it meant to be an adult, really, because I didn't have a lot of guidance. I'm a first generation college graduate. I have two master's degrees as we speak and will be starting my PhD soon, studying psychedelic assisted therapy with mental health professionals of color. Awesome. That's a big part of my story and things that led to me being the founder of Black Therapist Rock, which is a nonprofit organization of 30,000 Black mental health professionals. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's sort of your veteran story and your therapist story. Are you willing to kind of expand on your life story for a bit? What made you yeah. become a social worker in the Air Force? That's crazy enough all by itself, much less <laughs> traveling 37 different countries doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up, I was in the middle and the, the spick and the thick of the crack epidemic. And my mother was a single single mother, three children. By the time she was 19 years old, she, so we were almost always in poverty, struggled with food deserts and, you know, homelessness and many societal problems that, you know, I, I have lived experience around those things. So I know what it's like to not know, you know, how you're, where you're going to live the next day or how you're going to take care of each other and how you're going to stay safe and not having the basic needs that every human deserves to have, especially children. And so growing up with that and seeing that from a you know firsthand experience, I felt like someone should be doing something to change these things on a very big level. I didn't, you know, as many people that I saw needing help, I just wanted to know that there was someone out there committed to helping those people. And it didn't seem at the time, you know, growing up in, in Wichita Falls, Texas, a small town in Texas, it didn't seem like there was a systemic approach that actually was working to help people, you know, with addiction, with trauma and with poverty. And so I kind of had this burning in my heart. I didn't know what job that would or what profession that would lend itself to. But I really thought that, you know, I wanted to help people for a living. I considered being a teacher and I realized, you know, kids have a lot more stronger influences from their parents and there's a lot, not a lot of changes they are often able to make. And so I wanted to, I decided to work with adults around changes that they can make from their childhood or things that we've learned from our childhood. And I realized that that was called therapy. <laughs> I got to do a lot of that in the military, like I said. And as I learned about therapy in school, I learned about myself and all the things that I needed to heal, even within myself, and started to think of ways that I could translate what I was getting from a graduate degree program into education for the general public, including marginalized communities such as queer folks, black folks, brown folks, people who you know are also financially and economically unable to access things like therapy. Yeah, that's huge. Just 
fill in all sorts of gaps where the uh, the system has failed people just kind of stepping in there and and taking care of business where you can. It's a beautiful thing. Tell me a bit about your journey as an author. You're a co-author on like a New York Times bestseller. That's bucket list level stuff. Let's hear that story. All right. So the work, I, I will say right after I retired from the military, I was kind of thrusted into a new purpose with Black Therapist Rock. I had to really get smart about health equity and kind of understanding what it would mean for mental health professionals and all health professionals to be able to advocate for their community and resources, but also advocating for ourselves because we're typically not paid at equitable rates. We're not, we don't often get considered for employment at equitable frequencies. We don't have the opportunities that other people that don't look like us have. We don't have those privileges and the bias that's there in the employment marketplace. And so I started to see that those therapists, they weren't having the cutting edge trainings that everyone else had. They didn't have access to the things that are most evidence based. I started to really you know, dive into education and research around equity. What does equity look like in healthcare, And what, what are the disparities and barriers that are preventing that equity from happening? And as I started to get more and more indulged in equity, I started to find myself being a DEI consultant for people like Brene Brown which was an amazing start to, to a very big career, if you will. So working with Brene, who's been studying race, class, and gender for over now 25 years, I think. So really learning from her, which was, it's, it was uh, kind of ironic to be learning about race from a white woman. <laughs> yeah, know? that requires so, some humility, and, right? Yeah, you, right. you got that And then space. also having really interesting, thought-provoking conversations with the team that created her. She has a belonging statement she uses as her organizational's guide for how do we work with people. As part of the team that created that, it was just, you know, meeting other people who've been in this space for a very long time and being willing to, uh, as Brene says, she says, we have to be learners, not knowers. There is no one expert on diversity. The fact that diversity is such an expanded topic, it's such a wide range of things. It's really about how we think different and how we feel different and how we experience life in a very different and wide variety of ways. So really, you know, working with these other experts and thinking about my own experiences and how I could articulate that to people and help them understand that, especially for marginalized people and people of color, there's nothing wrong with us. We've lived in a system that's constantly told us that who we are is wrong or less than or inferior. There's some shame around that and grief with that, but there's actually nothing wrong with us. And once we can really internalize that feeling, which for me, psychedelics has helped me do that, to really accept that, you know, I've had some really painful experiences, but they don't define who I am as living being. And that's why you're pursuing a PhD in that regard, too. You want to tell me a little about the PhD journey? Yeah. So I told myself I never wanted to get a PhD. I'm sure <laughs> piled higher and deeper. <laughs> well, I'm actually not piled at all because I've been in the military <laughs> since I was 18. <laughs> so they paid for my first two master's degrees. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't need anything else. Yeah, yeah. However, they paid for both of mine too. Pay. Yeah. We're in the same boat there. Yeah. They want to pay for a PhD and Brene wants to have me down at the University of Houston to create a racial trauma research center. And I am really most passionate about psychedelic research as it relates to intergenerational trauma and racial trauma. And so really working with therapists, starting to work with healers first so that they can spread the healing out to the people that they're working with. Um, and just I can see a huge magnitude and impact by having a research center that's studies are 
conducted for us and by us. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. That's so beautiful. It's such a distinctive niche to be in. And you're kind of at the nexus point of a lot of that. What would you say sticks out to you the most as the sorts of things that we could as learners instead of knowers understand about that context or about what sorts of things are going to pop from the research that you're going to do there, do you think? Well, just understanding that we've all really kind of ingested, we're ingesting, should I say, every day, a ton of shame around the topics such as race, class, and gender. Talking about sexism, talking about homophobia, talking about police brutality or slavery or enslaved Africans, talking about things that have been politically charged since the beginning of time is really difficult. And when we're not having those conversations, people are dying as a result, in my opinion. And so just to understand that and studying and having the data speak to the fact that there's so much shame that many of us are carrying in this silence and secrecy of the things that we don't talk about. And, and like I said, that burden has primarily been placed on marginalized people to carry those secrets in silence. Once we have the data that shows what that's doing from a mental health perspective and from an overall health perspective on the bodies of marginalized people, I think we'll see a financial, uh, I guess maybe the financial, what, what do they say? They call it a, uh, not necessarily an investment, but the payoff. You know, there will, there will be a financial payoff of you know, being able to have more prevention-based care versus trying to put a Band-Aid over a bullet hole is what I call it. You know? Yeah. Often in but, you know medical context, we talk about quality adjusted life years, like the ways that oh. addressing depression is always in like the top three on the World Health Organization's list in terms of things that keep people from going to work, you know, disability, missing out on uh, other opportunities. And then you try to do math and try to figure out how do we actually quantify what it would be like if this person wasn't was undepressed and was able to go to work, but just those quality adjusted life years behind some of like the preliminary research on psychedelics, just the effectiveness, the robustness and the durability of the efficacy of MDMA assisted therapy in the first place is the sort of thing that's going to save healthcare and then save individuals down below that on the level of billions of dollars across a population across lifetime. I'm excited to see a whole lot better research get published around all of that sort of stuff, especially for populations that have been held back and held down and underserved and underprivileged for a very long time. The explosion of creativity, the explosion of entrepreneurship, the explosion of all the sorts of things that people are going to be able to do that they've wanted to do their whole lives, but just couldn't catch a break. I think that's going to be a beautiful thing. And I can't wait to see all the beauty that comes out of Houston from you being down there. That's amazing stuff. So you've spent a bunch of time over in Ghana, some of that somewhat recently. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about what it's been like visiting Africa, you know, along study abroad stuff? And I know you've, you know, you just took a trip there, what, this past year or two, I think. Yeah. So I actually got the opportunity to first go to Ghana when I was in graduate school at the University of Texas. I was a graduate assistant, actually, that led a group of 63 students from the University of Texas for the first time ever to the continent of Africa. And it was like a social work program. I was a social work graduate student, uh, and one of my professors selected me to help her bring this program to fruition. And so we took 63 primarily white students uh, from Texas <laughs> to Ghana, West Africa. And it was a really life-changing experience for me, but also for, I think we had about five African-American students who got to experience the slave castles or what we call the slave dungeons 
that still sit on the coast of West Africa. It's thought to be the portal that most African-American ancestors came through until they reached the Americas uh, through slavery, or should I say when they were enslaved in the Americas. And so just having a felt sense of that history and having an ability to go back and reclaim that history and really dive deeper into that history has really shaped a lot of my work around racial trauma and intergenerational trauma from a, again, from a lived experience, firsthand experience type of knowledge, if you will, or wisdom. And then returning back, I uh, married a man from there, you know, got to go back and work at a high school with a bunch of younger professionals such as myself and got to build relationships with them and built a really important relationship with one who was very great with children, of course, as a teacher, chemistry teacher, just really scientific way of thinking. And so we would have really amazing conversations around history and psychology. Just noticing that everything that I was taught about Africa, that in my mind as a child growing up in Texas, Africa was symbolic with war and famine and just lack and desperation and bleakness or this darkness, this void of life. And so going back there and seeing culture and beauty and love and joy, and really the one thing that I took away with me from that those experiences when I was in graduate school was that Africans are all about community. And that is, you know, I can, I resonate with that very deeply yeah. as somebody who- High collective, poverty. yeah. In the ghetto, you know what I mean? In the projects, it's like we all had to help each other and come together and all the women would be watching each other kids and the kids would all, you know, look out for each other at school. And so being a part of a community and knowing that and holding that in my heart and living from that place, really operating from a place of community, that's what Black Therapist Rock is all about. Most of our psychedelic trainings and, and retreats are all about communal healing. Um, that I believe that all of the intergenerational trauma, the corrective experiences happen when we come together and relate together in a healing way. Yeah, I agree. So that's, a thousand that's, percent. Yeah, so that's, that's my journey from Africa and kind of how I've, I choose to continue embodying Africa. It's, it's a really important place to me all over Africa. I went to Kenya this year yeah. and fell in love with the acacia trees. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how much do you want to say about acacia trees? I'll, I'll say a lot. I'm yes. still really mind blown by the whole journey. Yeah. That, can, that itself is a trip. Can, can I interject something and then you can tell about acacia trees? My first bachelor's degree, I had a double major in outdoor education and intercultural studies with a minor in Swahili. And hearing you share some of your stories from West Africa reminded me a bunch of the time that I spent in East Africa. There's a place in Tanzania called Bagamoyo, which like in Swahili essentially means the place you leave your heart. It was a place that slaves being taken from the African continent to India. That was one of the last stops on the African continent for them before they would go across the Indian Ocean. And that was the last time they'd see home. It was one of the most sobering experiences of my entire life to be at Bagamoyo. Just witness all of the history of suffering that had taken place there. I had shared with you after being at the MAPS training, I had my own ketamine-assisted journey and wound up saying the Lord's Prayer in Swahili just sort of spontaneously. Like, I had hadn't prayed in a long time. I certainly hadn't prayed in Swahili in a long time. Hadn't spoken Swahili in like a decade, but it just came out of my heart. Like that was the significant connection for me in a whole bunch of ways to like 
East Africa that I don't fully understand. I'm not anything even close to African. Like I'm Serbian by heritage, you know, like it's about as crazy white guy as it gets or whatever. But uh, man, some of those connections were just the most meaningful things in the world to me. There's something special about Africa. It's hard to get the dust of Africa off your boots once you've got it on there. I think it keeps calling you back. What I tell people, and especially after going to Kenya this year, is to me, Africa is the birthplace of humanity. If you believe in Pangea Mm -hmm. or whatever science theory of evolution you believe in, at one point, Africa was the center of the universe. And I think that we also have like even the, the idea of the drumbeat being foundational to the heart. All of that is still something that all of us can connect to. Drums are everywhere now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's a culture in Africa, this loving culture. Some people call it Mama Africa, but just this culture of, you know, that we're all one and none of whatever we see doesn't really matter. That love at the heart, at the core of who we are, at our shared humanity, that that's what really matters. Yeah, a thousand percent. So I was serving that up to try to get you to tell a little bit more about Acacia tortillas. Like what's that tree got to do with you and me and the universe? Yes. I love the story because it's so not me. It's so like, if I heard someone telling this story, I would say that sounds really wild (laughs) and walk off. Right. But my very first ketamine session, I woke up in Wakanda and all I remembered that it was a pink purplish sky and there was this tree and there were like ancestors in the fire. That was kind of all I remember. And I didn't know what kind of tree this was. I kind of felt like, okay, maybe I saw this from a Marvel movie and my brain just recreated an image. Who knows if it's real? But when I got to Kenya, I kept seeing this tree. And I was like, I got to know the name of this tree because it feels really important for me to know what this tree is about. This feels like the tree that I saw in that ketamine session. I remember I took a screenshot. I had been looking for the tree days after that ketamine session back in 2020. This is a ways back. So I took a screenshot and I still have that screenshot from 2020. Like, okay, if I ever, you know, come across this tree, I'll I'll wonder about it, you know, some more. And here we are in 2023, I'm in Kenya and I'm seeing this tree everywhere. So I reach out to you. I can't even remember like how I asked the question, like, do you know what this tree is? You're a nerd. You probably know what this tree is, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I asked myself, like, what made you think to ask him that? I don't know. Maybe because you spoke in Swahili. Yeah. And I knew that you were familiar with the continent, that you lived here, and that you spent some time here. I have a scar on my cheek from getting ripped up by uh, an acacia tortillas tree when I was hopping a ride on a huge lorry. I just jumped on the back of this thing to try to get out of the bush and back to the city and then took a big old whipper to the face. So maybe I have some acacia permanent connections from you know whatever i don't know how any of that crap works i'm not psychic i don't don't know like the science of it doesn't even make sense to me right but yeah there was some kind of it was like you asked me hey uh, there's this weird tree in africa do you know what it is (laughs) it was like this real generic question i was like acacia tortillas (laughs) knew the answer for some reason somebody else will have to explain that to us i don't know what that is right yeah but i knew that had to be the tree that you were you were curious about i don't know why so I ended up planting some in a village in Kenya. Uh, I got to go to a village and they plant trees in this village. And I was like, sure, you know, let's go get one. And I, I knew the name of it. So that and they were like, oh, that's a great tree. You know, everybody loves that tree. But the most interesting part, that because I was, you know, on Wikipedia, <laughs> reading everything <laughs> I could possibly read about this tree. 
the most interesting thing. So now I have to go to Australia. I've never been to Australia, but the Australian acacia has psychedelic properties. Yeah, yeah. There's some so DMT in it, like right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So I thought it was a really interesting full circle kind of, you know, um, less than three year journey, three year trip, if you will. That is just, yes, things that you, you know, there's no reason or logic behind it, but it, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's some kind of connection underground or through the sky, or I don't know how any of that stuff works, but it's all interconnected and like trying to figure out how is a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying hearing your stories and getting to participate even from a distance has been a privilege for sure. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. I'm going to roll on to question two about your intentions. I ask in my ketamine assisted therapy practice, I ask people about their story to get like an inventory about the past and where they're coming from. And then I ask about their intentions, which is about imagination. Where, where do you see yourself going from here in your story? I would say that my intentions are to live out my values. And so I have three values that I live my life by, which are legacy, laughter and learning. Nice. I always want to continue to learn and not be too much of a know-it-all that I can sometimes be. I want to laugh and experience a lot of joy with the people I love. And I want to leave a legacy that's inspiring and that my ancestors can be proud of. Nice. Yeah, the Baptist preacher in me loves that it's three letters. that It's three words that start with the same letter, right? Like that's how you make a sermon in, in Baptist history is live, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, so you want to live out of that statement. What do you intend to do concretely with that? I feel like I'm doing it. You know, every day I get up and I am as much of service to as many people as I can possible. Starting with myself, you know, taking good care of myself so that I can serve and love and spread healing from a, a lived experience, not just from, you know, from a brain place, an intellectualized place, but from a way that people can see it, that I don't have to explain it, they can feel it. Maya Angelou said that people may forget what you said, but they'll never forget how they felt, mm. how you made them feel. Yeah, yeah, that's 100% true, right? I remember, uh, you know, the five biggest jerks that I ever met in my entire military career. And then I remember, you know, the amazing commanders that I've had that were the kind of people that would give you the shirt off their back, right? Yeah. And everybody else is kind of gray noise in between, right? There's the worst and the best. Then, uh, yeah. So the way that I'll ask about bridging the gap between the past and the future is through gratefulness with all of your story and with all of your intentions, bringing it into the present moment. What are you grateful for, Duran? I'm feeling super, super grateful for the people who I just held a ketamine-assisted therapy training with. We had a BIPOC CAP training just last week. I'm grateful for my co-facilitator, who was a Jewish man who was willing to work through Hanukkah. Wow. Uh, I hadn't realized when we set this up that it was Hanukkah, <laughs> but as, <laughs> as we began Eight to- crazy you know, nights. When we got there, I was like, oh, you know, this, we have to plan better in the future. Yeah. I love that, you know, I have so many people who are interested in learning this work and taking it out to their communities and that, you know, we can come together and grow together and heal together. And 
I'm just still kind of on a very much high just from being in that collective healing space. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. That's awesome. Good for you. <laughs> so with all of your story and all of your intentions and all of your gratefulness, what are you creating in the world right now? I think more spaces for healing. We just got a partnership with MAPS where we're going to be doing a affinity BIPOC training, MDMA training with MAPS. Uh, you know, I love spaces where there's BIPOC and allies. However, I do understand that there is also a need for people to feel that they can be really safe and go deeper and, and be more transparent in their healing when there's people who who have similar lived experiences and can have a deep understanding for those lived experiences. And so I'm hoping to create a space of at least 100 MDMA BIPOC therapists by the end of 2024, 100 more in the world. I'm hoping to create 100 more ketamine-assisted psychotherapists of color and prescribers as well, because, you know, we need a lot yeah, more yeah. prescribers Absolutely. who are willing to not be afraid of ketamine and, you know, help people combat treatment-resistant depression. When we say treatment-resistant, we're typically talking about two antidepressants. Yeah, yeah. yeah in sequence, like right? People. Yeah, that's a major <laughs> trial. Everyone. Most people drop right. out, right? They're like, well, I tried it for a minute and I quit and I don't care. Like they hung with it and it didn't work for them, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm just hoping to create more alternative spaces where people don't feel like, you know, the barriers to the healthcare system have to be a no, a permanent no, that they have to continue suffering on their own and without support or without care because they're afraid of the system or they don't trust the system. Um, and I'm hoping to create more connections with allies who want to help us do that. Um, I'm just hoping to create spaces and opportunities and more love and more joy in the world yeah. overall. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I'm in. You count me in for whatever. I don't know. You know, so long as my wife says it's okay, I'm in. <laughs> Your name's on the list. It's at the top of the list. <laughs> starts with a, last name starts with A. That got me in a lot of trouble in the military along the way. Yeah, for sure. We need a volunteer top five on the roster. Damn it. Again, why don't they ever start with Z? Anyway. I have a question for you because I'm not sure if it's, it's been explored on the podcast yet, but I'm wondering, I've been really, I read the book. Cross-examination. Like, <laughs> sitting with the anti-heroes concept. Yeah. And I'm wondering what has really inspired you to create it. Like, what is it? Why did you feel like this is a concept that was important to be in the world? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a loaded question, right? For sure. So I think that it was around a lot of being able to integrate all that it is to be human in a way that doesn't fit easily into the patterns that we've inherited and the stories that we've been given so far. I think it's an idea that time has come with respect to the elevation of consciousness that we're pursuing as a species, if I can be that bold, you know, across the whole thing. The hero's journey is a really important building block towards what I'm arguing for. And it's really big in psychedelic assisted therapy at this point, in popular culture, like every good movie out there at this point, like people are kind of superhero exhausted at this point, all the Marvel movies and all the DC movies. It's just, oh, it's the same story, but with different spandex suits on or whatever. It's <laughs> call separation, initiation, return, the hero's journey, right? And it's this mapped out way of maybe healing in a psychedelic space is you need to be your own hero. No one's coming. It's up to us. You got to figure it out and you go into this medicine space and you 
gain new insights that you can bring back to your tribe or your community or your group of people. And it makes sense to a certain degree, but I also think there's problems with it. The hero's journey entails a villain. And the problem with trying to find villains is even whenever a villain isn't present, if you're going to be a hero, you got to find something to throw some shadow on and you got to hate that aspect of what it means to be human, even if it's something inside yourself, right? And the fact of the matter is, I think the literary character type of the anti-hero, the person who doesn't fit the easy molds of being a villain or being a hero or being a bystander or being a victim is what we all actually are whenever we get to the point of being okay with being ourselves. That... If you followed me around for a week, on a certain day of the week, I might look like a hero to you, but on a different day, I might look completely like a villain. And it just kind of depends on how well did I sleep last night or how much coffee have I had or, you know, there's like how much of my being triggered by something on that particular day that isn't even that person's fault, but I lose my temper or, or whatever. All of that I don't think fits easily or neatly into these black and white, either or red, blue state categories where it's just one or the other, these binary ways of thinking. Life's much more complicated. Life falls onto this spectrum that's a grayscale uh, in between. And that as soon as we get comfortable with that being the pattern of who we are and how we function in the world, that we'll be able to find some peace in ourselves and make peace for each other. Is that a decent enough answer for what I'm shooting for? I'm just oh, rambling at this point. <laughs> Very beautiful answer, actually. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I, people are interested. I wrote a whole book about trying to figure out how to be an anti-hero or how to at least tell my own life story as if it was a psychedelically inspired anti-hero's journey rather than the hero's journey. I think the hero's journey is a beautiful children's story, but I think it's time that we all grow the fuck up a little bit. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thank you for asking. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that about you. Always reciprocating. Yeah. Let's see. So you were talking about what you're creating and then you asked me a question yeah, because you're trying I'll to avoid to answering question. the fifth question, which is the hardest question. <laughs> no, go ahead. Sorry. No, I thought creating was the fifth question, but I, I want to go back to that question because this morning I asked myself, yeah. you know, what is it that I create in the world or hope to create in the world? And uh, I can't, of course, threes are my popular thing because that, that's easy for me to remember. I have to be able to remember whatever it is I'm going to be creating. And so I told myself love, joy, but more importantly, balance. I think that as a mother, that's what I'm trying to create when I'm facilitating healing spaces, especially psychedelic healing spaces. Balance. I, I realize the importance of balance. And we live in a world where there is lack of balance, this overindulgence in everything, this overdoing of too much all the time. And I've been wanting, you know, how can I restore balance? And as you were just talking about the anti-hero's journey, it reminds me of an IFS concept. IFS stands for Internal Family Systems. So I was an IFS ambassador with Dick Schwartz, working with Dick Schwartz for about five or six years. And polarization is the word that comes to mind when we're, you know, wanting to be all good or all bad we go into this place of fairy tale land where it's not reality. The reality of nature is to be balanced. Exactly. Yeah. We have all these ways of like artificially creating things 
that divide us from each other rather than uniting us. There are a whole bunch of ways that if we left things alone and just went with what was more natural, we would tend towards oneness and not towards two-ness and tend towards unification rather than division. Like even the existence of hierarchies is sort of weird in nature, right? You stack something high enough, that shit falls over. That's how we build our society is this gigantic hierarchy to the man behind the curtain, the guy at the top, the president or the pope or or the whoever is at the top of this big hierarchy. And then we can't understand why people at the bottom are getting squashed when nature is a holearchy. It looks a lot more like concentric circles that are all interacting with each other, that there's the underground roots and there's the, you know, the trunk of the tree that supports the possibility of having branches that reach up to the sky in the first place. And if you looked at a tree the wrong way, you'd think it was a hierarchy. But if you looked at it from a wide enough angle, you'd see that there's a whole lot more going on underground than there is above ground, right? And it's all interconnected. And it seems to be fungus that makes it all talk to each other as we've learned how trees communicate with each other and all of those sorts of things. So I think if we just would uh, mimic and if we would just get in sync with our environment, in sync with nature, that would be an easy way to correct the disconnection and replace it with connection, right? And I want to say, like, going back to Africa being deep in the heart of all of us, that the indigenous nature, the indigenous culture and understanding of things is what will could take us back to that balance. Absolutely. I yeah. I believe we're out of balance because of hypercapitalism primarily. And the more we can, you know, really go back to the original ways of being and to the original people of each land, I think we can learn a lot. I know I have learned a lot about balance from those cultures and those people. Yeah. I would just want to sit at their feet and learn about all of those sorts of things too. Me and I got more degrees than Fahrenheit at this point, but uh, I got so much to learn about how to be just a better person. So yeah, that indigenous way of being, I think this is the way. Man, so this is a beautiful conversation. Yeah, I don't want to stop, but yeah, uh, we gotta we gotta wrap things up. We'll, well, I'll have you back on again later. Like we're you know we're best friends forever, right? Promise. <laughs> we'll talk again soon. Balance the boundaries. <laughs> Fair, yeah. Bring that protector out. You need him. The fifth and final question is the identity question, though. Who are you really, Duran Young? I'm a living being, just like everyone else. Just like everything else, I'm energy that's flowing and changing and evolving every day. Yeah, I like that. Super simple, right to the point. It's a great way to end a podcast. However, I'm going to ask you if you've got any final thoughts or any other things that you want to share with the audience. This is your chance. I would say keep in touch. I love to connect primarily on social media. Like I, I was telling Doc earlier, I live on Facebook or I was telling someone else. I live on Facebook and Instagram because they were our first sponsors and they allowed us to continue doing the work that we do as far as educating communities about mental health, especially marginalized communities about mental health. Yeah. And so we have a lot of important conversations, I think, on Instagram primarily and would encourage everyone to follow Black Therapists Rock at Instagram and just stay involved in the conversation, stay connected. Awesome. That's beautiful. Well, I've appreciated your time today, Duran. Thank you so much. Doc out.